right, good morning, brothers and sisters. The uh, deacons in the back said YouTube is already live based on the uh, time here. So we're going to go before the Lord and open in a word of prayer and continue our study looking at Christ in the Psalms. Father God, we come before you. We thank you and praise you for the opportunity and the freedom uh, to come into your presence this morning. God, we recognize that we often come uh, with heavy hearts, with burdens, with distractions, and we pray that all of those things we would cast aside, Lord God, and that our focus would be solely on your son Jesus, through whom we have his righteousness, his forgiveness, and we have um, the opportunity to, to have salvation and eternal life. We thank you and praise you for those things, and we ask that your Holy Spirit would speak to us this morning as we worship, as we pray, and as we examine your word. In Jesus' name, amen. We're now on uh, week three of examining some of the Psalms. We've actually really only made it through one Psalm, and that's okay. Uh, it's not a, not a race, it's a marathon. So we'll be continuing in Psalm chapter 80 this week and understanding some of the, the hermeneutics of understanding this particular Psalm and other Psalms in light of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So we're going to reread the entirety of Psalm chapter 80 to begin, refresh ourselves for those who haven't been here the last couple weeks, give a brief recap, and then examine a portion that will go from verse 7 through uh, 15 this week. Beginning at verse 1 of Psalm chapter 80. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. You who are enthroned above the cherubim, shine forth. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You have made us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent its branches out to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see, and have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you have made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire, they have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face, but let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life, and we will call upon your name." Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. So as we've looked the last few weeks, we we got some historical context and we understand, good morning, we got uh, some understanding of all that the Lord is doing and speaking through this text. He's allowing the people of Israel to sing a song, to praise, and to um, bring a lament before him. They would have sung this song for many generations. We talked about the the dating of this psalm and the different times in which this could have been written. Uh, Kyle and Delich have placed this psalm uh, perhaps around 722 BC as uh, the northern kingdom was about to fall to the Assyrians. Um, 
Calvin and others put this more about the time of the exile, and we'll, we'll look at that again a little bit more today. But what we do know is that this is a song that the people of Israel would have been crying out to God, asking for his restoration, asking for his redemption, asking for him to, again, turn his face to shine upon them, to show his favor to them. We see a few different um, terminologies used to refer to God's people. We started off with seeing... Uh, the flock, right? Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. And in this passage that we'll examine this week, we see the illustration of the vine and the people of Israel longing that God would restore them with special favor because of their understanding of this, this vine. And so we're going to examine that together. But it's important to know that throughout this song, and throughout the history of Israel, there has been a, a hope for a salvation. And you see some of that even in this psalm, the mentioning of Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, right? The people of Israel put their hope in a descendant of Benjamin, King Saul, for some salvation. And that didn't work out well. So they, they shifted their focus, and there had been, a, again, a longing for salvation. And we see this throughout Scripture, a longing for salvation, and we will see it uh, today, that's ultimately fulfilled through Jesus Christ. But let's look at the, the psalm and some of the things that may have been brought to mind as the people sang out this song of, of lament and crying to the Lord. If we look at uh, verse 7, we see the recap of this stanza that, that occurs a number of times. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt, and you drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, its mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. They're recalling the, the glory days, the promise that God had made to Joseph. In fact, we see this promise recounted in uh, Genesis chapter 49. As Moses goes through and recounts the particular promises to Joseph, he says, you'll be like a, like a, like a bough, like a, a plant that's outstretching its, its branches and it's growing and it's taking hold. And it even talks about the, the extension of national Israel here. And we're, we're seeing these promises. But what we know is that these promises would appear to be a little bit in doubt in the time that Israel is singing these songs whether it was in 722 or in the time of the exile to Babylon, what we do know is that Israel was in dire straits. They did not have this shining kingdom. They did not have this um, time of blessing and of promise. All of that seemed forgotten. And so their cry to God is, remember those promises you made to us? And so as they sang this psalm, Certainly, other songs would come to mind. You ever notice that when you're singing a, a particular uh, song, there might be a refrain or a stanza that will take you back to another song, right? There's a little bit of that kind of woven together. Well, one song that may have come to mind for the people of Israel as they sang this was in Isaiah chapter 27. Let's go to that text together. We'll be viewing a couple of different texts in Isaiah this morning. Psalm 27, beginning at, at verse 2. In that day, a pleasant vineyard, sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it. 
I keep it night and day, and I have no wrath. Would that I had thorns and briars to battle. I would march against them. I would burn them up together or lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. In the days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. Great song, right? The people of Israel would have loved to have brought that one to mind. Talking about how God would establish this promise and that he would make Israel take root and that it would blossom and it would bear fruit. Great song, right? Unfortunately, there's another song about a vineyard in Isaiah that would have come to mind and should have come to mind. And that song has a vineyard metaphor that's taken just a step further and perhaps explains why the people of Israel are now hearing that their prayers are being spoken into the wind. Go to Isaiah chapter 5 with me. This is a, a song as well. We see that all of this is woven together and, and it's poetic and it would have been sung as well. And the Lord speaks through Isaiah in this musical uh, excerpt here. It says, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed, it out, hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes. We stop there. It's a great song, right? <laughs> Very nice love song. The Lord speaking of his, his promises to his people and establishing them as a fruitful vine. But the song doesn't end there. The song continues. He looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. O now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns should, shall grow up. I will command the clouds, and they will rain no rain upon it. For the house of the Lord of hosts, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah and his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. If that's the song that's being brought to mind, we have a clear understanding of how God has a blessing for the vine, and at the same time, he has a conditional curse. If they bear fruit, if they, they bring forth the grapes that he's looking for, there's blessing and there's protection and there's clearing of the ground and there's a putting up of a hedge. But on the contrary, failure to build fruit, failure to, to live out a proper understanding of their obedience and their relationship with God would bring about dire consequences. The wall will be broken down. The vine will be burned. Wild weeds and briars and thorns should come up. The rain that would produce the bountiful fruit would be withheld consequences. God looked for, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. He looked for holiness, and instead, he sees rebellion. So as you get to Psalm 80 and you sing through it, you see that all of this would bring to mind passages that they had sung, 
that had been passed from generation to generation, perhaps, that would have dealt with God's promises to the vine. And how much are we like that? We like to remind God of all of the promises while dismissing the warnings. Don't we do that? Isn't that typical of our, of our nature? And in fact, one of the texts that we'll uh, come to a couple of different times is uh, 1 Peter chapter 3. If we go there briefly, we'll understand a biblical um, principle that is evident throughout Scripture. In fact, these words are themselves a quote from Psalm chapter 34. But Peter says, beginning in verse 10 of chapter 3, For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. How many times in Psalm 80 do we see the people crying out, Make your face shine upon us? But it's not a mystery. It says right there, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So if their face is set against them, what's their problem? They're unrighteous. In order for the Lord to turn his favor and to turn his face to them, they must be restored to a place of righteousness. We've all been here long enough to to have studied and seen the, the biblical narrative. The theme of insufficient righteousness, of, of no righteousness, comes again and again and again. And so as Israel makes this cry out for God to remember his promises to them to be a fruitful vine, what needs to be brought into view is that their unrighteousness kept them from bearing fruit. Their unrighteousness kept the Lord's face from shining upon them. And in fact, that brings about even more serious consequences for Israel and for for those who were expected to be producing fruit. The prophet Jeremiah, my favorite prophet, they're all good. Jeremiah's my favorite. Um, In in chapter 2, makes a a statement, the word of the Lord with regard to the, the vine and the lack of righteousness seen in Israel in his day. Jeremiah 2.21, Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy, a pure seed. Why then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? See, the the thing that needs to be kept in mind as we look at the, the vine is that the vine is supposed to be an instrument to bear fruit. The vine in and of itself is nothing special. It is an instrument, in fact, to bring about fruit, the bearing of fruit. Ezekiel chapter 15, in the, in the time of exile, yet another prophet speaks to the people of Israel. They long to, to view themselves as this, this choice vine, right? Every time there's a song about the vine, they think it's about them, right? As I uh, was joking with Pastor John, you're so vine, you think this song is about you, don't you? <laughs> so we, we see another song about this vine in view. So we'll read this chapter together. It's a brief one. The metaphor is really clear. Ezekiel 15, And the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, how does the wood of the vine surpass any wood? 
the vine branch that is among the trees of the forest. It is wood. Is wood taken from it to make anything? Do people take a peg from it to hang a vessel on it? Behold, it is given to the fire for fuel. When the fire has consumed both ends of it and the middle of it is charred, it is useful for nothing. Behold, when it was whole, it was used for nothing. How much less when the fire has consumed it and charred it can it be ever used for anything? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, like the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest, which I have given to the fire for fuel, so I have given up the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will set my face against them. Though they escape from the fire, the fire shall yet consume them. And you will know that I am the Lord when I set my face against them. And I will make the land desolate because they have acted faithlessly, declares the Lord God. Look at that again in a moment, but um, I'm not a, a huge wine drinker, so I don't necessarily appreciate the fruit of the vine, but there are other plants that produce fruit that I do appreciate. Uh, one of those is the coffee bush. Um, when uh, I lived in, uh, Hondur- in Costa Rica for a time, I learned that there was a special variety of coffee that produced a very good, a very rich um, coffee, but the plant life, instead of being 25 years, which is what the normal coffee plant is, it was only five years. So all these farmers would make this investment in this plant that would bear great coffee for five years, and then they had to tear it out. But what do we do with this coffee wood? And so they created an entire industry that would sell the coffee branches to rotisserie chicken restaurants. And the coffee plant was amazing for making like a a mesquite-flavored chicken. And so they found a way to take all these coffee bushes and, and use them for something else. The metaphor here with the grapevine is very different. If any of you have ever had a grape arbor and um, torn it out and tried to burn it, it just smolders. It just smokes. You can't cook over it, right? If you tear out a grapevine, right, the purpose of the grapevine is grapes. If it doesn't give grapes, you tear it out. And it turns out it's not even good to burn. You can't even make chicken with this stuff. (laughs) So this passage in Ezekiel chapter 15, the Lord lays it out. Israel, as this vine has become less than worthless. It doesn't bear fruit, and you can't cook with it. In fact, he says, if you try to take the vine, I can't even make a tent peg out of this, right? The, the word that's used there is a, is a tent peg, similar to the story in Judges where Jael was, was killed with the tent peg. You can't even use this grapevine for that. It's worthless. Do people take a peg from it to hang any vessel on it? Behold, it is given to the fire for fuel. When the fire has consumed both ends of it, and the middle of it is charred, is it useful for anything? Behold, when it was whole, it was used for nothing. How much less when the fire has consumed it, and it is charred, can it be used for anything? The passage here also says something very important that ties back to Psalm chapter 80 about God's face. And how God's face is, instead of being shining on his people, it's turned away from them. Look what it says in verse 7 of Ezekiel 15. And I will set my face against them. Though they escape from the fire, the fire shall yet consume them. And you will know that I am the Lord. When I set my face against them, and I will make the land desolate, because they have acted faithlessly, declares the Lord God. Now what an interesting thing. Throughout scripture, we see God's blessing and God's curse. When God's face is shining upon us as believers in blessing, that speaks to his power. But it's no less true than when his face is turned away, it also shows his power. He's sovereign in all this. I will set my face against them. And when I set my face against them, 
you will know that I am the Lord. Right? This is really important for us to understand what's going on in this Psalm chapter 80, this song. In the good times for Israel, when their kingdom went from sea to shining sea, right? From the, from the river Euphrates to the, uh, to the Mediterranean, to the land of Egypt, in those times, God's favor was shown on the people of Israel and all their neighbors said, look what God is doing with these people. And now in this time of disobedience, when Jerusalem is broken down, their wall is destroyed, and they're in this time of affliction, guess what? All their neighbors can look and see, look what God is doing, right? They were not faithful to their God, and as a result, he's acting for his namesake. And throughout the book of Ezekiel, we see the people crying out to God and saying, act for your sake, not because of our righteousness, but for your sake. Remember these promises you made and how they highlight your faithfulness, your steadfast love, turn to us again. Cause your face to shine on us again. I'm going to read just a, a quick excerpt from an Ezekiel commentary. Um, commentaries are uh, a great tool, and I appreciate my brothers who are lending them to. Many, many of my commentaries are still in boxes in another country, so I have a uh, veritable borrowed library, which I appreciate. Um, this commentary says something very interesting about this passage from Ezekiel. He says, Usually, the force of assembly is to be found in the fruit-bearing properties of the vine, which make it so highly esteemed among men, but which are all too rarely evident in the life of Israel as a nation. Ezekiel, however, ignores the fruit, as if to imply that there is no question of Israel producing anything good, and instead draws a picture of a wild vine of the forest whose only point of comparison is the quality of its wood. This is notoriously useless, not being firm enough to make a peg to hang a pot from, or being of even less value when it's charred in the fire. The figure used here is of wood having been thrown into the fire as fuel and being subsequently snatched from the burning. But for what purpose? The application is then made to Jerusalem, insignificant and not worthy to be compared with the nations and the cities around it. Implicit in the parable is the prophet's response to those who imagine that Israel, as the vine of the Lord's planting, was indestructible. Cut down she might be, but they thought it was only a temporary setback. Before long, the stock would shoot again and Israel would flourish as she had done in, in days gone by. Such naive optimism was the object of Ezekiel's incessant condemnation. So what we, we see in this is that the people are, are crying out for God to act, but what God is, is demanding is a righteousness from them that they would never be able to accomplish. As many times as, as God had a reprieve from his wrath and would bring about some restoration, it was never lasting because their righteousness was never adequate. Their righteousness was never even found. And that is why it's necessary for there to be another vine with implications far beyond what Israel had even imagined. We know as we look at Scripture that the vine is Christ Jesus. Go back to Psalm chapter 80 briefly. It says in verse 10, the mountains were covered with its shade, its mighty cedars with its branches. It set out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. That's referring to the river Euphrates, talking about the, the geographical boundaries of, of Israel. Why then have you broken down its wall so that all that pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it and all that move in the field feed on it. 
Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see, and have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and the son for whom you have made, and the son whom you have made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire, and they have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man, whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life, and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine, that we may be saved. We see in that a, a third analogy coming into view, and we'll explore this one a little bit more next week. But we see not only the, the flock and, and the vine, but we also see the sun, the son of man. But what I want to direct your attention to in all of this right here is that we see that that, that protection, that hedge, that wall is broken down around the vine that God cherished and that it, it suffered his face being turned away. And that's no more evident than we see in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus, being perfectly righteous, was still cast aside by the Father so that an unrighteous people would be made righteous. Go to John chapter 15 with me. An incredible text that we all know. But as the God-man came and dwelt among us, he came to a people who had sung scripture for generations, had longed to hear from God for generations, and had considered their special status as a vine, and were waiting for some restoration. And Christ comes and flips the script and says, let me tell you about the true vine. Look at John 15, verse 1. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples." What an amazing text. Christ explains that this, this ongoing song of the vine, that he's the vine. That, that the people of God are but a branch intending, intended to bear fruit for God and for his glory. Failure to bear that fruit would have consequences. But Christ and his righteousness allows us to bear fruit. What, a, what an amazing thing if we, if we look at this explanation that Christ gives. He explains that the, the purpose of the vine is to then to cause those branches to grow and that fruit of the expansion of the kingdom of God and salvation to be made known. See, there, there is no need to go back to these texts and look for, um, look for Israel, right? And to look for this connection between the the vine in Israel and the vine in the church and all that, Christ explains that he came to be the righteousness that Israel didn't have, 
to be the righteousness that we don't have so that those who are found in him can bear fruit. Our role as believers is to abide in him, to be connected with him. That's why we, we study the word. That's why we spend time in prayer. That's why we memorize scripture. That's why we, we sing together on uh, days of worship so that we can bear fruit. That's our, our purpose. He's done that so that he would be glorified and that his kingdom would be extended. You might say uh, our role in, in evangelism is that others might hear the gospel of salvation through the grapevine, right? To, to, to be used to extend that message of salvation that comes through Christ alone. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may be, bear even more fruit. One other um, quote I want to share with you, this is um, from James Boyce's commentary on uh, Psalms brings into view how Christ is that vine, how Christ was the one on whom the Father shone his face, his face of favor, his face of blessing, because he first had to look away, right? All of the unrighteousness of, of our sins was placed on him. And because of God's holiness, he had to, had to look away, we know Christ on the cross said, Father, why have you abandoned me, right? Like God the Father had to look away and put the full weight of his wrath on Jesus Christ in order that we would be found righteous in him. So I want to share this quote. I'll also mention uh, this was two for the price of one in terms of borrowed books. Um, Jim Bennett's kindly sharing his, um, his Calvin and his Spurgeon commentaries with me. And this is Boyce, and he, he quotes both of these. So, Let's uh, listen to this quote. I am the true vine is the caption here. I think Calvin was right as to the setting of Psalm 80. The prayer is that God would bless Israel by turning the son of man back to God again. It is how we should all pray. At the same time, from our perspective on this side of the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ, we cannot forget that Jesus applied the image of the vine to himself, calling himself the true vine, the one essential and enduring vine before whom all other vines are but types. Jesus said, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He also said, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Without, Israel, without God, Israel herself could do nothing. At least she could do nothing except sin, and she did it abundantly, eventually falling away into the Lord's terrible national judgment. To survive to prosper, even to live, the people of the old covenant had to abide in God. No less do we. Without Jesus Christ and his power, we cannot come to faith, trusting him as our savior. Without Jesus Christ and his power, we cannot live a righteous life, turning our backs on sin and cleaving to our master. Without Jesus Christ and his power, we cannot achieve any spiritual victory or produce any spiritual fruit. Spurgeon wrote, without the Lord, you will do nothing. Immeasurable cloudland of proposals and not a spot of solid doing large enough for a dove's foot to rest. On the other hand, as Paul wrote, in Christ, we can do everything. And that is the, the song that we can now sing as new covenant believers. As the psalm cries out and says, God, cause your face to shine upon us. Cause your face to be turned to us. Make us again a, a vine that bears fruit. All of those things find their fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Turning again to 1 Peter chapter 3, we see Peter saying, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. He, he continues on, and the chapter says in verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as the removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and with powers, having been subjected to him. See how the psalmist fulfilled in all this? We see that God became the righteous for the unrighteous. God had his, his face turned away from his son, putting his full wrath on his son, that we might be given that righteousness, that we might experience that favor. And then that chapter ends with saying, Christ accomplished all this, and he's seated at the right hand of God the Father. We saw as we began this, the, the mentions of Benjamin, the son of my right hand. We saw how God flipped the script a bit on the, the, the blessing, right? We had Jacob stealing his brother's blessing, and then we had Grandpa Jacob blessing his sons, and he switched Ephraim and Manasseh, right? He switched that around, and now we see this, this switching again to show God's sovereignty. He takes the wrath that is due to us, and he places it on Christ. He takes the, the salvation that is merited only to those who are righteous, and he gives it to us, the unrighteous, he takes what should be cast into the fire and burned for not bearing fruit and he makes us bear fruit. See how that shows God's sovereignty? See how that shows God's favor? Throughout that psalm, restore us, oh gosh. Cause your face to shine upon us. As that's our cry, as that's our, our prayer, recognize that he has done that. He has taken what is not due to us and he has credited it to us. Praise God for that. So bear fruit. Right? So bear fruit. We recognize that that vine is Christ and that we have the opportunity, the invitation to abide in him and to bear fruit. Bear fruit. Let's uh, ask the Lord to do that in our lives this week. Father God, we thank you for the invitation to abide in you, Lord Jesus. We thank you for the righteousness of your son Jesus who died in our place, who was resurrected who has ascended and seated at your right hand, Lord God, we thank you and we praise you that that has been done on, on our behalf so that that which we do not deserve has been given to us. The curse that is due to us was placed on Jesus. The, the hedges of protection that were put around that vine were taken away. The full wrath was poured out on the sun, Lord God, and we, we praise you for that. It's a un, uh, difficult to understand plan, but we praise you for the, the mystery of the gospel in that. We thank you, Lord God, that, that you in bringing life to, to us who deserve death, you also give us the opportunity to bear fruit. While nothing in us is righteous, nothing in us is, is useful, just like the vine we saw in Ezekiel chapter 15, God, you choose to do things through our lives and allow us to bear fruit that gives glory to you. And we pray that we would do that this week. God, allow us to examine ourselves and to understand 
if we're abiding in you in a way that brings you honor, that bears fruit, that causes the world around us to question the hope that lies within us. God, we pray that that would be evident in our lives um, for our good and for the good around, of, around us and mostly for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.